All right, Exodus chapter 12, if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 12. We started last time, verses 1 to 20, and the topic or the subject of the Passover being instituted. And we didn't complete that section, and so we'll pick it up where we left off. We'll review briefly where we left off and then try to jump back in uh, and finish that section this evening. But this is the overall structure of these two chapters that lie before us, chapter 12 and 13. We're going to look at these three big ideas in the uh, weeks ahead. First, we're again continuing our examination of that first point here this evening, the, the Passover being instituted. Then we'll see it being implemented, Passover implemented in chapter 12, latter half of the chapter, verse 21 to 42. And then Passover regulated. There's more regulations that God gives to Passover uh, at the end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13. And of course, all of this, we made the point last time, so we don't need to belabor the point, but the fact that we have two whole chapters given to the Passover, and this is just here, right? If we continue to go on to the book of Numbers, we have more, a lot of ink given to the Passover festival. This is a, a very important uh, thing that God instituted to be a memorial, and we'll see that here this evening. In fact, this is what we uh, looked at as our kind of our, our sketch, our thought flow, as we look at Passover being instituted in these first 20 verses of this chapter. First, we looked at this last time, but we looked at the timing of Passover. Timing of Passover. When God, what time of year, remember he, he had them change their entire calendar in order to commemorate this day. And this is a, an important event that God doesn't want us to forget. And so we see the timing of Passover. But then we, we got about... Uh, halfway through the second point there, the elements of Passover. So we'll pick it up there tonight, and then we'll, Lord willing, look at those other two as well. The purpose of Passover, namely to judge false gods as well as be a memorial uh, for God's goodness, Yahweh God, the one and true living God's goodness and greatness and the deliverance from Egypt. But then we'll see the history of Passover. We'll just do a sketch of that, uh, but how Israel was supposed to keep the Passover, right? That's the, the whole point of these 20 verses is how it's being instituted, but then how it was not followed through most of Hebrew history. And so we'll just, we'll, we'll look at that uh, at the end of time allows. So last time, as we looked at the elements of Passover, we looked at the first two. We talked about bitter herbs and we talked about unleavened bread. Tonight, we're going to pick it up with the lamb. We, we started that a little bit last time, and uh, but didn't really, we weren't able to finish our thoughts, particularly getting to the idea of the blood and how important that is to this event of Passover. So that's where we'll pick it up tonight. But I did want to circle back just briefly, and we had a couple of questions about verse 9 last time, if you recall this. This is where we ended. We were talking about the lamb, because the, the, the elements of Passover is, they're given in verse 8. Right? It says, they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with the fire, and unleavened bread with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Right? So that's, those are the, the, the elements of Passover. But then verse 9, it says, eat not of it raw, speaking of the lamb, nor sodden at all with water or boiled, but roasted with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence or the entrails thereof. And so there was a question what that is. Um, so I did do a little research on that. It's all over the board uh, as far as even the rabbinic. Um, I think, Warren, you asked, what, how do the rabbis interpret it? So the guy who, uh, he was, I think he was like either the pastor right after or maybe two after Spurgeon, uh, John Gill. You ever heard of John Gill? He had the most 
references as far as ancient sources that uh, interpreted this, but it's all over the board. Some say, you know, most would, the majority would say that there is the removal of the entrails and cleaning them. Uh, and some say you put them back, right, and then you roast. Some say you burn them in the fire, right? Some say, I mean, in other words, it's all over the board. There wasn't really a, a, a clear consensus on that, um, but which, which evidences historically that the same questions we all had last week, <laughs> they've been having for centuries, right? It's like, wait a minute, what's the best way to interpret verse 9 and, uh, you know, prepare the lamb? So, so it's, it's, it's all over the board on that. Um, so I thought, you know, I'd get back to you on that, but there's not like a decisive rabbinic answer. But I think our favorite one that we were leaning to last time is that it's probably a good way. Verse 9 is perhaps best to view verse 9 as a summary of Leviticus 1. In other words, it's a one-verse summary, not getting into all the details of what Leviticus 1 tells us to do on how to offer up a sacrifice. So, so but there's debate on that. So, yes, ma'am? Is part of that skinning the lamb also? Yes. The majority, yeah, did describe skinning it. Yeah, but but not all even did that. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. It was like, it was all over the board when it comes to how the rabbis historically have interpreted it, right? In fact, there was one uh, favored, it was more favored Christian interpretation. The rabbis didn't like this one. But uh, later, that the, you were to skewer it two ways in the form of cross, right? Rabbis didn't like that one right? <laughs> because of the cross, all right? I mean, that's obvious. But the point is, um, yeah, but, that, but the idea of fire roasting it, you know, is, is clear. But how do you prepare it, right? There's, there's a lot of debate on that. So it wasn't real decisive. So I wish I could have a better answer for you. But I think my favorite one would be it's a summary of Leviticus 1, right? <laughs> At least that one doesn't turn my stomach quite as bad, so... But our, our goal tonight is, because that's where we ended last time, was the, the roasting of the lamb. And we talked about the, the importance of that, the importance of the fire, the imagery there. Um, but the, the blood in particular is what we're going to get into tonight. But what we're going to see is all three of these elements, what they had in common. And this is where we, again, we, this is as far as we got last time. So we'll, we'll pick it up with the, the blood here from here forward. But what all three of these elements have in common, the common denominator is that these various elements were to be prepared in haste and they were eaten while dressed. Recall this, and this is, this is where we see in verse 11, where he says, you are to eat this with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, which again is a violation of normal uh, Eastern protocol to have shoes inside, right? You're not supposed to do that. But the idea is here they're, they're eating even with their shoes on, right? They're dressed fully. Their staff is in their hand. Why? Because he says you need to be ready to go. Because as soon as this plague occurs and the, the firstborn die, then the Egyptians will thrust you from the land of Egypt. And, of course, as we'll get to it in the, in the next uh, section, latter half of the chapter, that's, of course, exactly what happens. So that's really the common denominator behind these three ideas. But let's, let's zoom in in particular to the idea of the blood and how this was to be a major part of the ritual here uh, at Passover. So again, the lamb was not uh, only practically important as a source of meat for the Passover meal, but it was also ceremonially important as a source for blood, right? The blood of the lamb has a very important section, part 
role to play in this ritual, this ceremony. Now, of course, if you're familiar with biblical ceremony to any degree, then you'll quickly recognize that blood is, is a very important component to biblical ceremony. The reason for this is given in Leviticus 17 and verse 11, where it describes how the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. In other words, blood is important to biblical ceremony because in it contains the life, right? It, it, the life is contained in it. And so this, of course, highlights the use of blood in biblical ceremony, highlights these major ideas of substitution, purification, and thus protection from wrath. Right? The idea that the, the, the blood or the life of that lamb is serving as a substitute for the firstborn. The lamb loses its life so that the firstborn can go free. The lamb takes upon it the wrath of God. And as such, uh, that's why the terms substitution and purification are both used, because it's really saying the same thing from two different angles, right? The idea of substitution is he is taking the wrath that we deserve, right? So that we can now go free. But because of that, it was also viewed as a form of purification. In other words, we still sing of this to this day, right? We sing uh, of the power of the blood of Christ. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? We're quoting there in those songs and hymns that we sing, we're quoting the book of Revelation that talks about how our robes have been made white, washed in the blood of the Lamb, which is a really ironic statement, right? You don't make robes white by washing them and dipping them in blood. But it's the idea is that of purification, that our sin has been removed because of the substitutionary sacrifice uh, that has uh, been given up in our place. And this is, of course, then the idea of protection, that because that has taken our place, the lamb was our substitute, we have been purified, then we are thus protected. We're spared from the wrath of God. Right? Now, those, those ideas that are pretty clear in this text become really fundamental, foundational to New Testament thought. When we get to the book of Romans, for instance, Paul will talk about how the blood of Christ, we are saved from wrath through the blood of Christ, and how Christ is that substitute, or the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist will call him in John chapter 1, verse 29. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so those ideas that we see here being illustrated... Uh, are going to be, of course, uh, very foundational to New Testament thought. We're going to touch upon this as we go, but this is one of the big things about biblical law, is how often it does this. God is a master teacher. He's really good, right? You teachers in the room can appreciate this. But how, how God is a master teacher, how he will take very important concepts, very difficult, deep concepts, and he will teach them line by line, here a little, there a little. Right? In other words, he helps us learn the difficult stuff by first teaching us the basics, right? the ABCs, and working up from there. And those building blocks we, is so much uh, of what we see in, in, in biblical revelation, particularly early on in the Old Testament. They are to be shadows of things to come, as the book of Hebrews will say. And so God is teaching us with very, you know, he is, as Bob says, right? he gets out the crayons, right? He, he, he gets down on our level. He helps us see really important concepts in basic, tangible ways, but then he's going to build on those later. Passover is a great example of that and how God uses this uh, throughout the scripture. But 
uh, again, summarizing these ideas, the slaying of the lamb served as a sort of sacrifice, which in turn nullified God's wrath against sinful people because it satisfied God's holiness. Right? The idea is his wrath was poured out. His, the, the holy justice of God was satisfied. That's where we get the word. Remember, the big long word starts with a P. What is it? New Testament word? Propitiation. That's right. Say that five times fast. But it's a good word, right? And the key of that word, the meaning of that word is, to, is the idea of satisfied or satisfaction, that the wrath of God has been satisfied, the justice of God has been satisfied because uh, that sacrifice took God's wrath in our, in our place. And so that's, again, well illustrated here in our text. But the, the concept of the blood is important for that reason, in biblical ceremony, but notice in particular verse 13 and how the blood is specifically said in the Passover ritual, it is specifically said to function as a token. Do you see this? Verse 13 says, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. In other words, the obedient application of the blood served as a token. Now, recall this word token is a word that means an outward sign of inward faith, right? An outward sign of inward faith. We see this several different places throughout the scripture. But the fact that when they did this, when they took the blood, right, they spread it on the the doorposts and the lintel. When they did this, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, recall this. I'm going to go ahead and read it. We talked about this in our, in our Hebrews class a while back. <clears throat> but Hebrews 11 specifically says this was an act of faith, right? So notice, let me just remind you of this. It's right in the middle of, of talking about Moses, right? How he, by faith, when Moses was came to, when he came to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, etc. That's verse 24 and following. But then in verse 28... It says, through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So notice in particular the phrase, you know, he kept the Passover and in particular the sprinkling of the blood are both described as having occurred through faith. In other words, it was an act of faith when they obediently took the blood and spread it on the doorpost and the lintel. So the, the, the faith is an inward intangible thing, but the external sign, the token, the evidence of their faith was their use of the blood, right? The blood on the doorposts. And again, in modern culture, we see this um, uh, probably most clearly in the wedding ring idea, right? The wedding ring is, is a modern version. It's a, of a token, right? Uh, I've done many wedding ceremonies and on all the wedding ceremony you know, uh, as they work through the, the classic vows and all the traditional ways that you say things, the ring is often called the token of your affection. Are you familiar with that? It's kind of an old way sometimes. It still exists in weddings. But the idea is that it's a token of your affection. The affection is something internal. It's intangible. But the evidence of that so that everyone can see it is the wedding ring, right? That's the idea. So uh, that's that's one of the functions that the blood had was to be a token of Israel's faith. 
In other words, as that Israelite catches the blood, spreads it, he's evidencing his faith. Now, again, additionally to this, throughout the Old Testament, the shedding of blood often signifies entrance into and being part of the covenant with God. In other words, if we were to go back to Genesis 15, Genesis 17, these are examples of this, Genesis 15 in particular, where God is making a covenant with Abram, right? Abram at that time in verse uh, chapter 15, he's still called Abram. When God makes a covenant with him, right, they, remember this, they, they cut up the animals, divide them in half, and they walk between the pieces, right? That's how a, a traditional covenant was made. But that idea of shedding blood was an important component to entering into a covenant. Does that make sense? And so this idea is important. When they use this blood and manipulate this blood in this situation, in their time, place, and culture, that would have been signifying their willingness to enter into a covenant relationship with God. Does that make sense? Yes. I was thinking about when you were saying how God introduced this from building blocks, and I was thinking about the introduction first when he talks about Abel's blood crawling out from the ground, and it was by faith that Abel offered the best sacrifice. I wonder if that was his first little building block that he dropped or information. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I mean, I, I've, this is a fun thing for me because I'm a teacher, right? I mean, fellow teachers, we can appreciate this. But I, I have an article that um, a while back that I, I just really appreciated. We were talking about the Bible at large, but Jesus in particular is the master teacher. And examples of this, exactly like you just said, so much of what you see in the scripture, right? Every major theme, whether it's blood, whether it's you know, the promise of Messiah, whether it's sin, whether it's marriage, whether it's, you know, just fill in the blank. It, it starts in Genesis, right? And in seed form, and then you're going to see it develop and climax, ultimately, the book of Revelation. But how God is so good at, at teaching, you know, in that way, starting with the building blocks, introducing these key concepts, building on them as it goes, you know, elaborating. And, and, you know, broadening our, hori- our horizons, if you will, deepening our understanding, et cetera. And, uh, but yes, that's another example. I mean, the blood of Abel, the, the preciousness of his blood, crying out for justice, the idea that, you know, blood must, you know, that innocent blood being shed needs to be satisfied, right? There's all those ideas that you see in a narrative form, but you're not going to get all the importance of that until later revelation. Then looking back, you're like, whoa, and like, now I see it. Fred? said something about they did it out of faith. And we had talked about how back then God was actually there. They actually could experience God versus now it's kind of in the spirit and everything else. And I wonder how much that had to do with actually doing it out of faith. Sure. Yeah. In fact, um, I think, no, that's a good point. It's a good question. I think uh, the parallel to that, I didn't really talk about it, but on this last slide, the idea of back in chapter 9, I paralleled that with, do you remember one of the previous plagues talked about this, the idea of, it was the hail. Remember, God says, I'm going to send the hail. And it says, those who feared God obeyed. Right? In other words, and fearing God is often a biblical synonym for faith. But the idea is there that they saw God keep his word right, in every other instance. So now God says, I'm going to send the hail. And those that believed God, feared God, responded obediently by hiding their cattle. Well, similarly, when it comes to, you know, the the tenth and final plague, it's like, well, if God says he's coming through the land and everybody, right, that every firstborn's going to die unless you 
do the blood over the you know the doorpost, etc. Then it, this was another opportunity, right? The warning was given. This is what God's going to do, and so, but it still required faith, even though they, you know, had seen God all work all along. But that's kind of the point: is they'd seen God work and keep all of His His promises. So they're like, well, man, if He did it before, He's going to do it again, and so they ought respond appropriately. That's good, Bob. Well, I was thinking about your last slide. I was talking about um, the blood and the, the new uh, signified entry cleansing of the covenant. And it, I was kind of looking back on 12, 10, and 11 where it talks about then the food will be left over to the morning and then they'll eat in their sandals and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Is, that a, is that an indication of the new life they are to live um, moving forward to be ready you know, when God would call upon you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, in other words, we have other passages that allude to that same idea that, you know, when Israel is released from Egypt, they're going to begin anew, right? I mean, they're turning over a new leaf. It's a new life ahead, right? They're being freed from their shackles. They're going forward to the promised land, and God is promising them all this blessing, you know, blessedness as they enter that land. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think that... And the shepherd... Oh, interesting. You mean like, yeah, the, how they were to prepare. They were practicing cooking here because they were going to do it in the wilderness. <laughs> oh, it's the thought. I mean, because we've seen multiple examples of God's providence, right, where it's like he's doing something here. They have no idea that God actually is preparing them for something coming down the road. Yeah, absolutely. No, I could see that. Dave, did you have you had a hand up? Oh, yeah. I just uh, maybe think about how he... God told them to eat that, eat their meal in haste, put their sandals on, put their uh, robes tucked in their belt, get ready to leave, you know, with their staff. Um, it makes me think of uh, us as Christians that we are to live in this world like preparing to go somewhere yeah. else. Ah, uh, that's good. Living here and that's good. Living, I mean, not living haste, but I mean, this isn't our home. We're getting ready to leave. That's good. That's good. Kind of yeah. Like <laughs> exactly. In fact, I think that's that's good because I mean, Book of Hebrews makes that same point, right? Is that we are to live as sojourners in this world, right? I mean, Peter makes same point. First Peter, that's good. So in that sense, they were to be prepared and ready to go, and in a sense, that's how we're to live the Christian life. That's good. Yes, ma'am. Yes, absolutely. No, that's absolutely true. That's good. In other words, you know, she's asking, is, were there other people that, you know, non-Hebrews, that is, that were participating in Passover, that would have perhaps listened to those instructions, followed those instructions, spared the firstborn, and then exited with Egypt? That's right. Absolutely. Amen. Also goes with what we talked about earlier, not living in the past, but living in the now. 
That's right. That's right. Living in the now, making a difference here and now. And, and I think you're abs- and, and there's biblical evidence for that, right? The idea of the mixed multitude that goes out of Egypt. There were some Egyptians. We don't know how many, right? Because it gives us the exact number of Hebrews, but there were some Egyptians that came with them. That's right, because they, they did make a difference right there. Were you going to say something? No? You were to say something. Go ahead. I was just thinking, didn't we tell the, um, the aliens living among you to be circumcised to take the Passover mm-hmm. from there on out? So Right. Yes, we're, we'll get into that more so. It's, it's actually at the end of chapter 12. So it's, it's underneath that, you know, but it's one of the regulations that God gives. And the reason for that, in short, we'll talk about it more later, but in short, the reason for that is because, remember, circumcision was the sign token of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? So the idea is that <clears throat> someone to participate in Passover needed to be someone that converts to Yahweh. Worshiping Yahweh, does that make sense? Right. So that's that's really the the main thrust there. But uh, and we'll. But you're exactly right. That's the end of the chapter. That's right. Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. I think you're exactly right. And I think that's what that mixed multitude is referring to. There were some Egyptians that said, you know what? Yahweh says what he means and, you know, means what he says. He's been doing everything that he's been threatening to do. So maybe we should follow him. That's exactly right. Amen. That's good. Now, a classic, right? I can't not point this out because you're all thinking it. But when it comes to the manipulation of the blood, there is long been the observation that in verse 7 when it says take the blood strike it on two side posts and the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat that this has been again uh, namely primarily a christian observation but nonetheless the application of the blood to the lintel and the door posts might be significant in that it the action traced the shape of a latin style cross in other words, many have, have looked to this as one of those little building blocks, right, that at the time seems, seems totally insignificant, right, um, until we get later. Now, I think in this culture, there was significance to the fact that there was a, a superstition. We even see it in the Philistines later um, in First in Samuel, but there was a superstition when it came to doorways and thresholds. Right? In, in other words, the entrance to a house, because a house is a place of protection, but the obvious vulnerable spot is the door. Right? And so the idea of uh, charms and things that were set on the doors in pagan cultures was very normal. And, and so even in a pagan culture, it would make sense to, hey, if you're going to protect your house, where do you put the protection? Where's, you know, where's the blood go? On the door. Right? It's the most vulnerable spot. But looking from the New Testament perspective, looking back, I think we can see some further significance to it. Uh, and, and there's, of course, later, it's, it's mixing metaphors slightly, but Jesus will also liken himself not only to the lamb, right, the one who's the, the blood, but also the door, right? And there's so many different applications that Jesus makes that seems to evidence. In fact, in, in John 6, right, we could spend, this is another whole series just talking about New Testament connections. But in John 6, Jesus likens himself to the bread of life. And there's some debate on that. Is What's he thinking? 
primarily man in the wilderness, probably. Um, but some will liken it back to the unleavened bread as well of Passover. Right? In other words, there's so many connections that Jesus will make later that these are building upon, again, the master teacher. He's giving us building blocks that later he's going to really draw out a lot more meaning and help us see that these were, as the author of Hebrews says, they were shadows of things to come, that God was designing even the shadows in order to later help us understand with greater, greater clarity. Does that make sense? So again, uh, note in particular that the text is clear on this, but the Israelites were not automatically exempt from the plague, but they had, in, they had to, in fact, or to act in faith in order to be spared from judgment. I, and I think this is interesting because... This idea is important when you place it back in its original context. Recall that many of the Israelites were as guilty of idolatry and subject to death as were the Egyptians. We've talked about this before, but according to Ezekiel 20, verses 4 to 10, as well as Joshua 24, 14, it says explicitly that the Jews were idol worshipers. They worshiped the gods of the Egyptians. Most of them did. And so it's important for us to recognize that this act of faith, right? In other words, there's a number of plagues that they were exempted from. That, hey, this happened to the Egyptians, but the, it, the Israelites were totally spared, right? There was light in their dwellings, or, you know, there was uh, no, no locusts that took over their stuff, right? And then ate all their uh, produce, etc. Their cattle were fine. But when it comes to this, God says, everyone must do the, you know, catch the blood and, and put it over the doorposts. Otherwise, there's the first, firstborn will die. And the whole idea is it's requiring this idea of individual participation, that, that they each individually had to participate as a demonstration of faith. That they, in other words, as I often say, God has no grandchildren, right? God has no grandchildren. You, you must be born again to be a child of God. I don't care if your parents were a child of God. That doesn't make you one. Right? God doesn't have grandchildren. In other words, you must be born again. Right? It's an individual cho- choice, individual decision. And that's, and that's seen in the way that God sets up the plague, if that makes sense. There must be an individual participation and demonstration of faith in order to be spared. And so that, again, is, is going to have a lot of New Testament ink uh, spilt, if you will, to help us understand that we're elaborating upon that idea. But as we pass from these elements of Passover, the flesh of the lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, I also want you to see the purpose of the Passover, that this text, particularly verses 11 uh, through 14, gives to us. The purpose of Passover was threefold, according to these verses. First, in verse 11, it is to honor Yahweh. He says, thus shall you eat it with your loins girt, your uh, shoes on your feet, staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. Why? Last line, it is the Lord's Passover. In other words, do it the way I tell you to because I told you to, right? I mean, in other words, honor God by your obedience. Recognize that he is, uh, you're bringing honor to him and he is the one worthy of worship. But it's also meant to judge Egypt and her gods as well as prompt and memorialize the Exodus itself in verse 14, all right? So again, let's just look at these three in turn. But the Passover is all about bringing honor to Yahweh, evidencing that he alone is worthy to be worshipped. Yet the Passover demonstrates this by judging the land of Egypt, humiliating, humiliating the gods of Egypt, and delivering Israel from Egypt. 
In other words, God is about to do something spectacular, and so he wants all the, you know, his people to be obedient to him, to keep the feast the way he wants it to, uh, to be kept. And so it, in their obedience, they're honoring Yahweh. They're demonstrating faith in him that he is indeed the one worthy of worship. But it also is crystal clear, and verse 12 is only rivaled in clarity by Numbers chapter 33. Uh, in fact, it might... Uh, behoove us to go there. But he says, verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And then notice this, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh or I am the Lord. Now, keep your finger here, but go to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33. I want to highlight this reality. That's repeated here in Numbers chapter 33. We also see it alluded to in in Isaiah 19. But in Numbers chapter 33, verse 3 and 4, it says, And they departed from Ramesses in the first month, in the 15th day of the first month. Now, by the way, this is, if if you zoom out and just look the entirety of this chapter, it's one of those chapters most people skip over. You know what I'm saying? It's like reading the genealogies in the Old Testament. This one is not a genealogy, but it's a list of Israel's journeys. Right? It's a step-by-step GPS, if you will, telling you where they went, where they went after that, where they went after that, where they went after that. And it gets a little you know, redundant. But notice it says, verse 3, They departed from Ramesses in the first month, 15th day of the first month. And the morrow, after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with a high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon their gods also the Lord executed judgment. In other words, it's describing the first leg of their journey. They left from Ramesses, and they're walking out of Egypt. And as they're walking out, what are the Egyptians doing? Burying their dead as the the Israelites are walking past them. And, And as they're walking out... God is saying, look at that, I judged their gods. In other words, their gods couldn't stop this. This was the ultimate humiliation uh, of the Egyptian pantheon. All right, yes? I've got a question. So, you know, in 12 where it talks about uh, both man and beast, obviously the beasts weren't personally doing anything against God. When the beast struck down because they were sacred to the Egyptian gods. Exactly. Yep. So it's the same sort of thing that we've seen in earlier plagues, that, that the Egyptian pantheon was, again, remember, pantheon means multiple gods, right? They, they, and they have a collection of gods, and they have a god for everything. And there's a god for the day, and a god for the night, and a god for the sea, and a god for the land, and a god for the crops, and a god for whatever. So there's, a god, there's several gods that were being humiliated with the death of the firstborn including the beasts, because there were gods that were supposed to protect the beasts and to give you know, fertility to the, uh, to the beasts and the flocks and et cetera. And, and again, and I think this is the backdrop that we see in, in Exodus 12, 12. We see it in Numbers chapter 33. Isaiah 19 alludes to this. But this is the backdrop that we need to see all the plagues performed against, right? I mean, God ultimately in all the plagues, he's targeting the Egyptian pantheon, humiliating the Egyptian pantheon. And we see it, and we're going to get to it later, but let me also read Exodus 18, 11. This is the words of Jethro. After Moses comes out of Egypt, they meet up with Jethro. He tells Jethro everything that happened, 
it's really remarkable. I love this scene. But it says in chapter 18, verse 7 and following, it says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, did obeisance or bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare. And they came into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the travail that had come upon them by the way and how the Lord delivered them. Verse 9, And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, or blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the uh, hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, verse 11, that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods. For in the thing wherein they dealt proudly. Who dealt proudly? Some say the Egyptians, but it's probably referring to the gods. Right? That was the nearest antecedent. But that the, the gods of Egypt were proud, but who was above them? Yahweh. Yahweh humiliated the gods of Egypt. In other words, when Pharaoh, when, uh, well, Pharaoh is humiliated, but when Moses is telling Jethro about that, Jethro is impressed. And, he, and that's his conclusion. Right? He boils it all down and he says, Now I know of a certainty. Yahweh is better than all gods. And those proud Egyptian gods that everybody feared, that everybody revered. Because remember, Egypt was the big dog of the day. That was the superpower in that point in the ancient world. So everybody feared the, the pantheon of the Egyptians. But he says, boy, they're nothing compared to Yahweh. And so that is, again, the, the big idea that is uh, one of the purposes behind the Passover is that God is humiliating the gods of Egypt. Does that make sense? But, last but not least, all right, I got just a few minutes. We also see this idea of the purpose of Passover back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. He says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. In other words, the, one of the purposes of Passover, why is God making them go through all of this you know, ceremony, this ritual? Well, again, we already saw back in chapter 11 that it gave us this stated purpose of this original Passover, namely to prompt the actual Exodus event, that God's going to do this so that the Egyptians are going to thrust you out. But he also, once this was... Uh, actually occurred. He wants you to memorialize this for, you know, year after year perpetually. In other words, this Passover celebration was observed in later years, and it was to consist of this eight-day festival that he goes on to describe from verses 14 to 20. And he says, and I want you to do this every single year. And the reason, of course, is, is so that they would never forget. And in this, again, I, I mean, let me just kind of explain this. Most of us when we think of Passover, it's a one-day event, um, and that's true, but it's, it kicks off then a second festival, which is a seven-day event. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's an eight-day festival that, again, if you're familiar with this, the first event would be the Passover meal itself so that's celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, which would be followed then by a holy convocation or an assembly on the 15th day, which then kicked off seven days of avoiding leaven and even removing it from their house, all right? Then this, this week this, uh, of time, the seven days of unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this week was also to consist of a Sabbath rest, according to verse 16, which means they were to refrain from any normal work. These special organized 
festival traditions were meant to commemorate and memorialize what God did in the Exodus account. All right? In other words, he says, I'm going to do something spectacular and supernatural, and I don't want you to ever forget it. So I want you to remember it year by year and celebrate it with this festival. The word memorial is what that is getting at, right? In verse uh, 14. This word memorial, if you were to study it in Hebrew, it's actually connected to a Hebrew word that means to remember. It occurs 24 times in the Old Testament and refers to a disciplined remembrance that is institutionalized in biblical faith. Why? Well, because we're called to interpret our present circumstances in light of God's known faithfulness in the past. In other words, this is a huge theme throughout biblical ritual, ceremony, biblical uh, life, is this idea of a memorial, a means of remembrance. Why is that? And I, and I, I just love this thought, but we're to interpret our present circumstances in light of God's known faithfulness in the past. I don't have notes on this in this presentation, but do you remember us speaking in the past of the Hebrew concept of time? Are you familiar with this? I think this is so profound, but you study the words in Hebrew for past and future, they are opposite of what you and I consider in our day and age, right? When we consider the past, it's what's behind us. And when we think of the future, it's what's ahead of us. In Hebrew, the word that is literally future is aharit hayamim, the days that are following after. In other words, they are viewing the way scholars typically describe it, is they're viewing life like you're in a rowboat. You're actually rowing, right? But you're going backwards. You're looking back where you came from and you're going backwards. Now, what's so profound about that is because, you know, they talk about, well, the, the, the days that are ahead in our language, future, they call the days that are behind you. You can't see them right? The future is vague. What can you see? What's behind you, right? Or that's what in their language is ahead of you. It's actually the word for past, past time. So they look, they go into their future by looking at the past and it guides their future. Does that make sense? It's really, now, I mean, just think about that for a second. It's totally reverse of Western culture. Like, you got to sit there and stew on it for a second. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. But then as you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's incredibly profound that they view, because the, the, the future is hazy. You don't know what's coming. It's behind you. But what is sure? What is certain? It's where you came from. It's the past. And so this idea of remembering the past, remembering what God has done, don't ever forget it. That is key to biblical religion, if that makes sense. Yes? No, it's not only Hebrew culture. It's Eastern culture. Not all Eastern cultures do that, but several do. Yeah. I'm just wondering if that plays into why there's some tension, like the things that they're angry about. It's like if this happened yesterday, but it was hundreds of thousands of years ago. Oh, yeah. And it's believed. So what probably that derives from is we orient ourselves north and south. In the ancient world everything was oriented east and west. Why? The rising sun. So if you're looking at the sun, right, everything they orient facing east, right? So that's 
where the sun starts. But then the future, right, as time passes, it's now what's behind them if you're facing east. Does that make sense? That's where they base their vocabulary off that. But then you're right. Their entire culture is built off of that. So much so that they do. They remember blood feuds for millennia. Yeah, they do. It's true. And we're going to see some of that in the scripture even, right? I mean, wait till we get to chapter 17, right? God says, don't ever forget what Amalek did, right? Just come back for that one. That's a great lecture. I can't wait to talk about that. But the point is, I just want you to ponder this for just a second, and then then we'll, we'll be out of time. But think about this for a second. Notice how often this occurs throughout biblical uh, law and biblical culture. Notice the various memorials throughout biblical faith. For instance, we see right here, Passover festival and the festival of unleavened bread are called a memorial, chapter 12, verse 14. When we get to chapter 17, God has Moses you know, command the, the people to write down the war with Amalek as a memorial so that they would never forget so one of the purposes of the scripture is, is they were writing down what God did so that no one would forget, so that later generations, voila, that's us, right? Centuries, yea, millennia later, we can still remember what God did by reading it because they wrote it down in a book to memorialize it. We see stones uh, that are set on the high priest's shoulders, for instance. In Exodus chapter 28, they were meant to be a memorial, a remembrance, because those stones each bore a name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he carries those to remember the tribes of Israel as he's before the Lord, because he's representing them before the Lord. The ransom money in Exodus 30, verse 16, we'll talk about it more when we get there. That was meant to be a memorial. The blowing of the trumpets on a festival, according to Leviticus 23, or over offerings, according to Numbers chapter 10. Uh, the fire pans, that, <laughs> that's a great one. Remember number 16, they were in rebellion against God. So the fire comes out. And, and wipes out all these wannabe priests. And their fire pans, because they were touched by the holy fire of God, are now holy. And God says, I want you to go collect all their fire pans. These are the dead people, right? He says, go collect their fire pans, and we're going to make that into a piece of temple furniture. Why? As a memorial. That God means what he says that only the Levites are supposed to be priests, right? The descendants of Aaron. He says, you can't just waltz in here and say, I'm a priest now. He says, it doesn't work. And so he wanted to never forget that. So that's, a, again, we see Joshua 4, stone pillars. When they cross the Jordan River, remember this? He says, all right, everybody grab a big stone, right? One stone for each of the 12 tribes, and they build a pillar, a pile of stones. Why? so that they can never forget. He says, so that one of these days, he's speaking to the Israelites, he says, one of these days, you're going to walk past this, and your kid's going to ask, Dad, what are these stones here for? He says, and then you stop, and you tell them the story about the Jordan River crossing. You never forget what God did this day. We see this all throughout the Scripture. I love this theme, but Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Psalm 77, Psalm 106 are a couple of places where the Psalter really camps out on this idea, describes the dangers of forgetting what God has done. Samuel Johnson once said, quote, we need more often to be reminded than informed, end quote. I love that quote. We need more often to be reminded than informed. We're so prone to forgetfulness. And so the Psalms will often describe this. And yet what's ironic is as you, as you trace this through Israeli history, and with this, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But as you trace this throughout Israeli history, Passover was actually 
sparingly observed throughout Israeli history. It tells us this explicitly in Numbers 9, Joshua 5, 2 Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 30 and 35, Ezra 6, Nehemiah 8, where it says, for instance, in Joshua 5, it says that they, they kept the Passover because they hadn't for years. Then they get to 2 Kings 23. Josiah keeps the Passover. Why? Why? Because it hadn't been kept for years. 2 Chronicles 30. Hezekiah does it. Why? Because it hadn't been kept for years. Ezra gets back from, from captivity. They keep a Passover. Why? Because it hadn't been kept for years. In other words, this was supposed to be a yearly occurrence. But more often than not, Israel failed to do so. And what we see is that this, this, play, this plagued Israeli history, where we see this concept that they, they, they forgot what God did. They didn't keep their eyes on the past and recognize God's faithfulness. So much so that when it comes to, and this, this is one more profound thought that we'll end with, <clears throat> but one scholar put it this way, from Genesis 22, verse 7, all the way to John 1, verse 29, Israel was supposed to ask, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? That was one of the main purposes behind the Passover every year to remember that we needed a lamb as our substitute. But then, of course, John the Baptist, when he says, behold, the lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world, pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, what happened? Well, the majority of the nation missed it, right? They didn't see the significance of it. And, and that's the danger that we have when we don't remember God's faithfulness in the past, and, and it's really important thing. And I, and I do encourage you to do this. Uh, I, have, I have ebbed and flowed in my faithfulness to do it over the years. But I, I have long been encouraged and I encourage people, when God does something in your life, when he answers prayer, when he does something, it's a God thing, write it down. Tell your kids. Tell your grandkids. Don't let yourself or others forget what God has done because more often than not when we're going through a hard time and we're so quick to blame God and say oh why me why this right we're so quick to forget the long list of what God has already done for us right he says in Psalm 103 Lord help us to not forget all of your benefits right count your many blessings we have a hymn that describes right name them one by one and this will remind you what God has done Right, that's a really important concept. Bob, and then we'll go back here. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about what you said about the, the, the past and the future whole idea. It would seem that it's absolutely true because if you in a little boat heading east where you're looking west, you go far enough east and when you end up west. Yeah, yeah. That'd be a really long rowboat. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you would. That's right. So it'd be like it's true. If they orient themselves east or west. That's right. And, and, I'm, I'm, and we'll talk about that more when we get to, like, the tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle. A lot of symbolism built into the tabernacle. God told them to face it east, right? And, and there's, there's significance to all of that. But we, we miss so much of it because it is. It's a different culture. But, Elena, what were you going to say? Yes. So, in fact... Most of Old Testament history, we, we do not see, you know, we see the spotty, you know, back to these passages, we see very spotty observance of the Passover, but this did change when Ezra shows up. So when Ezra shows up, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have incredible reform take place. There was a really good thing that happened. 
with Ezra. And from there forward, they started keeping the Passover religiously, right, year by year. But then what happened, right, and this is the scene that Jesus steps into, and Josephus also, I, I put there in your notes, Josephus also confirms that Passover was practiced regularly since the days of Ezra. Because that's the intertestamental period. We call it the 400 silent years. Right? The Bible doesn't talk about that. Well, not as history. It does as prophecy. Daniel predicts what would happen during that time. But, but many of the events that transpire, like the Maccabean revolt, all that, that's not in the Bible. It's apocryphal books. But when we see Jesus step on the scene in New Testament times, what had happened, this is a really long story to tell you how it happened, but we have the Pharisees, Sadducees stepping in, where they commercialized it. Can that happen? Where's a holiday, holy day that's meant to commemorate something that God has done that we commercialize and then we forget the reason that the holiday was there to begin with? Has that ever happened? Put your thinking caps on. It's really hard, really hard to imagine that. But the point is, that's what happened. So when Jesus shows up in the temple, right, he says, you have made this house of prayer into a den of thieves. And he was upset. And it was Passover that he cleansed it the first and the second time right? It was Passover both seasons. He was upset because they had perverted the meaning behind it. Does that make sense? So you're right. Yes, it was religiously being observed, but externally, if that makes sense. Yes? Going back to this idea of sharing with your children the remembrances of the things that God has done in your life, um, having that opportunity to do that with their grandparents or Mm -hmm. You know, the, those Amen. generations that have gone before, and we had the opportunity to do that with my parents when the kids and I just went back for 11 days. Amen. We, we really did nothing but, you know, sit in their house and talk and play cards, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Right. But um, that opportunity to, to ask them, how was God in our generation? Amen. Like, how did he, and, and listening to my dad talk about, um, his great grandfather, you know, who was a circuit riding preacher, you know, just those mm-hmm. stories. We are so close to the time when those will be lost. That's right. So it's so important to take those opportunities, even if those people in your family say, well, you know, we're first generation believers. God has always been at work in your family. And if you dig deep enough and you ask mm-hmm. enough questions of those people who have gone before you, you will see and you can point to your children to say, do you see that God has always been after you and about Amen. you and for you? That's good. That's good. Yeah, Fred. You see that nowadays. I mean, you talk to kids nowadays, some of them don't even remember Vietnam, World War II. They don't even remember 9-11. That's right. They don't remember any of that. So someone pointed that out to me recently, that our, our college oh, students now, those, yeah, those who are entering college were not alive for 9-11. And they don't even know about 9-11. Yeah. And you start thinking about that, you're like, whoa, wow, you know? Yeah, my dad in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it's so true, right? And that's why, and again, we're so, and we, Washington, D.C. has many of them, but that's why they build memorials, right? It's the intention behind a memorial is to help us to remember, to never forget, right? Because why? Human nature, we are prone to forget, Right? Whether the good or the bad. Yes, sir. So around this time period, does the Bible ever talk about anything else that's going on around the world that just focused around Egypt? There's a few other empires going on. Yes. It does have some things to say 
Um, not a ton, but we can look at a lot of external records and we can corroborate and, and you know, synchronize the records. So there was, uh, Egypt was the big dog on the block. Their, their big foe was the Hittites before them. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a big battle that took place. Uh, in fact, it's, it's near this time where the Hittites and the Egyptians were battling for dominance, and they kind of stalled out. Anatolia is their region, but it's modern-day Turkey. Yeah. Yeah, so Tower of Babel would have been before this. Yeah, significant. But then Greece, the big heyday of Greece would have been about a thousand years after this. Yeah. After this? After the Exodus. So Exodus occurred. In fact, glad you asked. So we got a lecture coming up in a few weeks. We're going to talk about the date of the Exodus. So 1446 BC. Yeah, 1446. And the heyday, you know, for the Greeks. Alexander the Great was, you know, 300s. Yeah. And then the Shang Dynasty over in Asia was around this time, too. Yes, I think so. I have to double-check my dates on that. But, yeah, and the Indus River Valley was booming at this time. Your big empires in the world at this time were Egypt, Babylon, right, the, the Mesopotamian River Valley, Indus River Valley. Uh, the Chinese were establishing empires at this time. Yep, those were your main centers of civilization at this point. Yep. Exactly. Boy, you nailed it, right? Why why are so many people working so hard to rewrite history? You see what I'm saying? Yep, because they don't want us to remember. That's right. And it's so important. Don't lose track of where we came from. That's right. That's profound. Okay, so we are out of time. Next time, uh, we'll come back. We'll look at Passover implemented. All right, we'll actually look at the actual Passover event itself as they carry out God's regulations and the Exodus occurs and they leave Egypt. All right, we'll jump into that next week. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time tonight. Thank you, Lord, for Exodus chapter 12. Thank you for what it is we're learning from this passage. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn to grow, to glean from each of these uh, weeks that we get together, each opportunity we have to gather together around your word, might you instruct us. And as we looked at tonight, that, Lord, you would help us to always remember to never forget who you are, what you've done for us, what you've done in ages past, what you're doing in our lives, in the lives of our parents, our grandparents. Lord, to see what you have done throughout the ages, that, Lord, we would constantly come back to remember, to place our Uh, confidence in you, the God of history. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, your providence, your love, your grace. We ask that you would help us to trust in these, to worship you in light of them for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.